Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Monday, April 26, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So uh, apparently my colleagues here, I'm not sure about Noah, but Abe and Christine did not watch the Oscars. And I'm only going to talk very briefly about the Oscars uh, because why would I talk at any length about the Oscars? Because they involved movies that no one has seen, performances that nobody cared about uh, in the uh, COVID year that shut down movie theaters. And this is about movies. And now apparently movies are mostly online and streaming and all of that. And uh, the, to the extent that that is the case, the Oscars are going to die because, and they are already dying because all the glamours leached from them. And, uh, you know, it used to be in the old days that people watched the Oscars because they never saw celebrities. They never saw movie stars. Uh, and this was the one time in the year you could see them dolled up and dressed up. And now, of course, they have Instas. They have uh, TikTok accounts. They, they tweet. And, you know, for the last 30, 40 years, there's been entertainment tonight and all of that, so that they're they're never far from us. They're 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 over present in our lives, not under present, and therefore uh, whatever mystery is exposed by the Oscars has long since not been exposed by the Oscars. But atavistically, it was still a sort of very highly rated show, and people watched it. And then the last five or six years, it has been tanking, and now really last night, and th- th- this is really the key. So last night, uh they staged a show that in the first hour of the show, uh, they had several clips from foreign films in, in, in foreign languages with subtitles. They had uh, boring categories. They had uh, weird speeches. There was no comedian, so no one was trying to be funny. Uh, Regina King, who was the first person to talk, said... Boy, if that verdict had gone another way, I'd, I wouldn't be wearing these nice shoes. I'd be wearing marching boots. So it was like right there in a minute, the first minute, you know, it all got political. Um, and uh, and then they did like 10 minutes giving an award to the motion picture home uh, with footage of the motion picture home. And they're handing out goods. They're doing nice things for people or the motion picture fund or the home. I don't even know what the hell it was. <laughs> so... This show that was already going to have a terrible rate. This is a, sh- a program that routinely got 25 million people watching it. It was the first, second, or third most highly rated show of the year. Uh, my friend Richard Rushfield predicted that it would get like eight and a half million viewers at most. And it maybe it will start at eight and a half million viewers. There is no way that by 11 o'clock anybody was watching. And so we could have this kind of total calamity collapse of the Oscars. But here's the important point, and then we then I will stop the monologue. Uh, Abe knows that I have a theory, uh, or you guys know, but I mean, Abe in particular knows I have a theory that something happened in the United States in in in, in this uh, millennium, uh, begin- where uh, things stopped working, right? And that uh, uh, there are bizarre errors, mistakes, incompetencies that you never saw before from elite institutions and things like that. And the Oscars was one key element of that. When in twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty announced the wrong winner of Best Picture, if people remember. They announced La La Land had won Best Picture. Producer of La La Land gets on stage, looks at the card, which Faye Dunaway had had, had handed him, and said, wait, we didn't win. <laughs> Moonlight, you guys won. <laughs> so they mispronounced or they handed the wrong card. Nobody really knows exactly what happened. It was all it screwed up. Um and it was like that that would never have happened there's some sense in which only in only in the america of the present could anything like that ever possibly have happened well something like that happened last night and here's what happened though this was just a just a giant um conceptual error so you know, they were trying to do stuff differently. So there was a it was filmed like a movie, and uh, uh, supposedly there, there, all was different. Was there were no production numbers, there were no comedians. Speeches went on for ten minutes. Nobody cared. It was deadly. And then they decided to hand out best picture, not as the uh, final award, which it has been now for 
93 years, but as the third to last award, Best Picture, so that the Best Actress and then the Best Actor, the Best Actor Award could, could end the night. Why do they do that? Because they were sure that Chadwick Boseman, the tragically, you know, whose life was cut tragically short by cancer uh, last year, uh, star of Black Panther and various other things, and 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 in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, nominated for Best Actor, that Chadwick Boseman would win the Oscar, and his wife, who has made several beautiful speeches on the awards trail about him and his commitment to things and all that, would be the last speaker, and everybody would cry, and it would be a, an emotional highlight of the evening. And so Joaquin Phoenix, who won the Oscar last year, is there to uh, give the award out for Best Actor, and a uh, very awkward guy, weird guy, uh, announces all the nominees, and then he opens the envelope and he says, "In uh, the Oscar goes to Anthony Hopkins for The Father. And then he says, Anthony Hopkins is not here tonight. The Academy accepts the award in his honor. And that was the end of the show. Three hours... To conclude with Joaquin Phoenix grudgingly and bizarrely accepting the award on behalf of Anthony Hopkins, who did not show up, theoretically, because he figured he wasn't going to win because Chadwick Boseman was going to win. Now, I just have to tell you that in my Oscar pool, I picked Anthony Hopkins. So I knew he was going to win somehow. I don't even know how. And some, I'm, I'm always wrong, so I wasn't really sure of this, but okay. So... My point is that they rearranged 93 years of tradition. They rearrange it so that the best picture is not the last thing awarded of the evening in order for this thing to happen that doesn't happen. And the entire evening ends with it, you know, like falling flat on its face. Okay, but that is in keeping with what I think is some of the uh, preparations that went into the Oscars. I didn't watch the ceremony itself, but I was reading some stories about the preparations in Los Angeles and they cleared out all the homeless encampments <laughs> to make sure that the elite Hollywood uh, actors and producers and whatnot didn't have to see the riffraff. And then they put a fence all around the, the area. So it, to hear Regina King talk about putting on her marching boots is kind of ironic, given that they kind of cleared out all the people who were living on the street there to make this sort of Hollywood-esque show look like a Hollywood set when in fact the reality of how people are living in LA and the crime rate in LA right now is quite the opposite. But they didn't make it look like a Hollywood show, right? Because it didn't include any of the arc that you would have in a conventional drama, which is apparently what they're going for. I I didn't watch. I never watch. I don't have any fully articulated opinions on any of this. But what John's describing sounds like they're attempting to make, you know, the, the, an actor or an actress in this case, you know, the, the leading figures in this as opposed to no. pictures or institutions. Nah. But what no, they did, they, 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 they thought they could have a tearful finale. Right. They could go out on tears because Chadwick Boseman is dead. And but, they would give the Oscar to a dead guy who is 43 years old and his wife would get up and cry and everybody would cry. It would be like an emotional moment at the Oscars last night when Chadwick Boseman was posthumously awarded. Only the third time in history that someone has won the award posthumously. A great, And, of course, in the year of George Floyd and the diversity I, I Oscars. Gotcha. And, uh, I hear okay. you. Yeah. But what they didn't do is establish the conventional setting for a production where you don't have a production number, you don't have a ch- an MC, you don't have a host because nobody has the proper social justice credentials to be a host anymore. So it's an unregulated, ungoverned affair um, that is that <laughs> doesn't really have a central theme or a narrative. Well, yeah, but here's the yeah. here's the good news. Yeah, um, if media and showbiz and everything were as much of a hoax and uh, a, a rigged system as everyone seems to think it is these days then chadwick boseman would have won no matter what right well look i think that's a good point here's the other thing like there was one moment are so white and racist no there was one moment i think it was 2003 when chicago won best picture the movie chicago won best picture and um uh it was like it was like going away everybody assumed it was going to win and so the people who handed out the Best Picture Oscar that year were Michael Douglas and his father, Kirk. Why? 
It was Michael Douglas's wife, Catherine Zeta-Jones, was in Chicago and, in fact, won, as expected, won a Best Supporting Actress Oscar for it at the beginning of the evening. So they're there to hand out the Oscar at the end of the evening. That was the one time I thought, yeah, I don't know, uh, because maybe they know who's going to win. Maybe they, like, took a look inside the envelope because imagine if Chicago hadn't won. This would be a really, really, really awkward handoff from these guys who were there because one's wife and one's daughter-in-law were the, you know, the, one of the stars of the movie. So I was like, I don't, I don't think they would do that without really being sure. But I think this and the moonlight thing and all that do, do, re, do, do suggest that yes, surprises can happen and they happen. They actually happen all the time, but imagine a world in which you reorient the entire sh- nine decades of a show based on the, rebuttable presumption that there's going to be this moment that you can exploit at the end of the show. Uh, Like that is uh, that's a sign of a kind of blinkered incompetence. Like that's not how you plan for a big live event. You don't plan for, well, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Chadwick Boseman. So we're just going to upend everything to make sure that, uh, that we get that, you know, we get those tears. Because uh, it may not happen, and it and it, and it didn't, and uh, and it's like how everybody always assumes now that a news event is going to go in one valence or have one direction, right? That 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 thus and such is going to happen, and you know Trump's polls are going to tank, or uh, this is really that's it, and then people are going to you know this will happen, this happens, and then this is how everybody is going to react to it, or something like that. And the truth is, nobody has any idea how anybody is going to react but to anything. It's worse than that because this—they actually had more control over things. I mean, this strikes me as being more like a bad after-school special, right? Or like a bad, uh, you know, very special episode of Punky Brewster, where like a kid has to die, and you're like, "This is so off-brand for Punky," and you're the kid watching it, and suddenly you feel betrayed or you feel shocked, but not in a good way, and you haven't learned anything. So it—it's—it's. It, it's, I don't know. It just doesn't. Yeah. I, I think it's an interesting argument, but I think they actually had a lot more control over it than we do in terms they of did. how they Yeah, and they didn't they use totally that. They totally did. That's, my, that's, that's where, like, the elites are screwing up everywhere, right? So this is like the Hollywood elite. Now, granted, one of the things about this show is you watch for three hours, you hear these speeches, and it's like, you know what? You guys, like, really, it was so much better when you talked less. You know, there's this fantastic short story by John Cheever called The Chase Clarissa about a man who becomes obsessed with this gorgeous woman. Uh, he, like, takes the a ferry to Martha's Vineyard every weekend, and she's waiting for her husband on the dock, and and they, they always fight, and she and her husband always screams at her, and she bursts into tears. And he figures, I've got, and he's, like, obsessed with her, and he wants to, he, he wants to sort of, like, have an affair with her. He finally meets her, and they're at a party or something like that. And uh, he gets her in the living room, gets her into the kitchen and says, why is your husband so mean to you? And then she starts talking, and it turns out that she is a blithering idiot. She starts talking about how she believes there are amoebas that are from outer space and this and that and the other thing. And all he says, the story ends with him saying, that's really interesting. I think you're so interesting. And the last line of the story is that was all it took. When you when you see these people and they get up and they start making their speeches, some of which are written for them, obviously, it's like, don't speak. <laughs> like, just don't, please, please, God. Like, the old Korean lady who won for Minari won, is, was, like, incredibly charming and funny. And everybody else embarrassed themselves. Like, it cringed, except for Tyler Perry. Tyler Perry won the Gene Hirschholz Humanitarian Award and made it actually kind of quite beautiful speech about American unity and how we shouldn't hate cops. And it was, it was really great. It was really great about what he learned from his mother as a poor kid. And other than that, it's just you want to, like, crawl into a hole and die because they they never used to talk. You never heard celebrities talk about anything. Because they don't know anything. Because they're beautiful people who get who are really good at impersonating other people. And other than that, 
they should just, you know, it's like if you watch their Instagrams or something like that, you know, what they're good at is like posing and wearing bikinis if they're, you know, or, or you know, like kissing their girlfriends on the beach or something like that. They are not interesting people um, by definition. Well, I'm sorry to say, okay. despite your prediction that, you know, the Oscars is, is dying, um, I do think there's a very good chance of there being a post-pandemic um, revivification of the Oscars because won't there be all sorts of excitement about a crowded theater again with all the stars showing up in person where and, and people um, doing numbers and, and you know, sort of a, a return to the pre-pandemic reality that, that will be presumably the next Oscars. I mean, oh, Oscars I have been in decline for a very long time, but it's not just that. It's everything. It's professional sports. It's primetime television. It's mm-hmm. every live event over the course of the pandemic year that you assumed would benefit from the fact that no one had anything better to do suffered across the board, in part because it's not just that they had nothing better to do, but what the programming became was just an extension of the news cycle. Everything is an extension of the news cycle now. So if you want to get away from the news cycle, there's nowhere to go right. but to turn off all your electronic devices. Well, it's also it's also I think just basically that um, uh, scales have dropped from so many eyes about so many things that people used to have a kind of naive and un uncluttered interest in, like. What dresses are they? It's so fun. They're so it's so much fun. The Oscars are fun. It, these events are fun and spirited and high spirited. And then the more people understand about how manufactured these things are, how laboriously manufactured they are, how how um, how they they basically are sort of support structures for industries or add you know uh, including sports by the way, which you know again once the game starts, there's a game you know, but. The super the Super Bowl warm ups and this everything like that it's like enough already like you're all this is all just salesmanship you know it's like I I can see I can see the inner workings of these things and I you know I, I'm seeing the man behind the curtain and I'm disillusioned by it and, and it's salesman it's salesmanship for a product that nobody actually wants they're told they should want it. They think they have to want it. The social desirability bias is in favor of you wanting it, but they're not selling it to you because they're not giving you anything that you traditionally would use as a sales product. All the ribaldry, ribaldry, however you pronounce that. Ribaldry. 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 The ribaldry that we used to use to sell products to, for example, young men is forbidden. You can't, you can't use those tactics anymore. Mm -hmm. You can't have uh, the kind of, you know, the, the, the frivolities that used to typify an Oscar ceremony, big production numbers, you know, bad jokes, and people making fun of themselves. All right. that stuff is off is off the table now. Ricky Gervais, actually, the reason his speech was so great last year is that he did that, and they didn't like it. They didn't like being mocked because they take themselves very seriously when it comes particularly to politics. Yeah. They always used to do that, and they and there was always somebody there who would temper that with, you know, a little, even if they didn't like it. And the fact that they didn't like it was great because that was all part of the part of the effect, right? But um, even that kind of, you know, off-color humor or self-deprecating humor or roasting humor or just skin, you know, sex. Sex doesn't sell anymore, not because it doesn't sell anymore, but because you're not allowed to use that sort of stuff. Right. But okay, but gl- I want to go... Glamour, g- glamour and wealth and competition sure. are also themselves far too fraught now. Right. Right, but I, I just want to go back to the things aren't working right, and the kind of the ways in which certain types of elites uh, embarrass themselves uh, with their um, lack of foreknowledge about what what they're what they're up to and about. I mean, you can every week you can pick something like this up, like the press conference at the Four Seasons that turned out to be at the Four Seasons lawn and garden center uh instead of at the four seasons hotel for uh, on the on the uh, supposed fraud in the vote in pennsylvania right that that was one i would say the entire uh 
uh, Varsity Blues admission scandal and the way in which it was responded to, not only by the people who got arrested and the celebrities who got arrested and all that, but the entire world of elite meritocratic institutions that uh, pretended as though this was not the exposure of a system that had gotten just astonishingly corrupted and, and the revelations over time about how these schools have these ha- uh, unbelievably low acceptance rates because they, they consciously attempt to gin up applications that they will never accept simply in order to make themselves look more exclusive stuff that keeps coming out that are revelations of this, uh, you know, uh, or, or the, the leaks that came out of Harvard about Asian uh, admissions, stuff like that, like over and over and over again and politics that happens all the time too. Um, and, uh, and, and, and they keep doing it because um, the, they're instead of no, also because shamelessness is now a totally acceptable thing. People, people don't as they, as they have for most of civilized civilization, they don't seem to be standing around panicked that they're going to be humiliated in public. And that, that, that is a remarkable control on people's that narrows the width of their freedom. It like, you know, you keep, keeps things within certain boundaries just so you can prevent something happening that you will never be able to live down. As long as you live within certain parameters, you maybe you're not going to be wildly exciting or like, you know, sort of take the world by storm with your provocation, but you're not going to be humiliated. You're not going to be embarrassed. You're not going to be like live your life in shame because there is no shame anymore. I mean, apparently there's only shame if somebody announces on a Slack channel that you made them feel unsafe, then, then you have to express that you're ashamed. Yeah, I was going to say that I think that that lack of shame rule applies largely to elites who already have enough power to withstand the their own shamelessness. If you're if you're if you're a little guy who says the wrong thing or refuses to go along with the politically correct uh, ideology of the day at your workplace or your educational institution, you will be made to feel shame, even if you yourself don't don't feel it. You will be shamed in front of your peers. Well, are you? Are they, or, yeah, or they experience such low stakes shaming on social media environments and sort of become acclimated to the idea that it's a consequence free condition. Right. Although it, it doesn't feel low stakes to, to the, to the little guy. It only feels no, no, low no. stakes. It's a, and it's not low stakes in the real world. If right. you really humiliate yourself publicly, there are still and remain some pretty serious stigmas associated with it. It's just that we have this illusory, illusory condition online that all of us have experienced that actually doesn't really matter. Right. Well, uh, so this is all a pain in the back, pain in the neck, pain all over your body. And you know what I'm going to tell you? If you're feeling pains like that, you got to get yourself the X chair, that great superstar desk chair, the the uh, the luxury supercar of office uh, chairs with its patented dynamic variable, dynamic variable lumbar support, which offers unbelievable lumbar support to my lower back. And now, thanks to the new XHMT technology, also provides heat and massage therapy while you're sitting at your desk. The XHMT delivers that massage technology and that heat technology right to your core, helping increase blood flow, muscle recovery, and energy. All perks that make working from home a joy. It even has four different massage modes for therapy when I'm sore. Instead of my old, uncomfortable office chair, now I look forward to spending hours sitting in the Ultimate Therapeutic Massager. You won't believe the X-Chair difference until you feel it. And it's on sale now for 100 bucks off. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-Chair. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as 30 bucks a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel Blaycasters, xchaircommentary.com. So... Noah Rothman, I believe uh, that the octogenarian dictator of of the United States, uh, and I'm not talking about Joe Biden, may be about to let people breathe free air. Well, can you can you give us a okay? Sorry, I mean I mean that would be lovely. Um, So yeah, I 
I'm writing about this later today for the blog, I think, because I have precisely one thought per day. So you're privy to it now at this moment. Um, but yeah, I, I caught up on all of Dr. Fauci's whirlwind interviews on Sunday morning. He was on Meet the Press. He was on ABC News. And he made a little bit of news just a, and just a little bit of news, um, in part because he addressed this a little bit on uh, Meet the Press regarding um, masking. And he said, as we get more information, it's, it's going to be pulling back. But going on the CDC guidelines, he went into a little bit more detail on ABC News where he said, you know, he was asked specifically about conventions that force you to mask outdoors, even if you're fully vaccinated. And he said, listen, you know, my agency is pretty, I'm paraphrasing, my agency is pretty, you know, uh, data specific, data centric, and we don't have a ton of data to make these uh, assessments. However, common sense tells you, and he used the word common sense twice, common sense tells you that if you're a vaccinated person, the risk to you is relatively minuscule. Use the word minuscule. Therefore, you should be seeing some more guidelines about masking coming coming outside, at least coming coming in the next couple of days. So hang tight. We could be getting a little bit more, you know, liberty in terms of masking outdoors if you're fully vaccinated. Uh, you know, God bless. And this morning, President Joe Biden, according to NBC News, promised that in the next 24 hours, some new guidance is coming. New guidance is coming down the pike. Now, what precipitated this? Not research. As Dr. Fauci clearly admitted, there is no research associated with this. Um, what happened was, and we've been talking about this on the podcast now for a couple of weeks, which is pretty prescient of us, I think, because elite opinion in places, venues like the New York Times opinion page and the Atlantic um, have now warmed to the notion that a real rebellious libertarian position now to, is, is to oppose outdoor masking. And voila, all of a sudden it migrates up the chain to the mouth of George Stephanopoulos, who communicates it to Anthony Fauci, and it all goes all the way up the chain to the president of the United States, and now we're going to get the guidance that we should have gotten months and months and months ago. Only now, because the right people are talking about it, we get this kind of information, we get this kind of public, safe, uh, public safety guidelines that comport with everybody's lived experience. And this isn't all that dissimilar from what happened to um, the guidelines around disinfecting surfaces. Because for months, we all knew that this was sort of theatrical. And to his credit, people like Derek Thompson at the uh, at the Atlantic had been on this beat for a long time. But it took it took elite consensus a while to catch up to his views. And then it became consensus. And by December, you had news organizations like NPR and the New York Times going, well, is this really all that necessary? And then we had in, um, I believe it was April, early April, the CDC said, yeah, I mean, this doesn't really matter. You don't have to actually do that anymore. Um, so God bless the elite consensus for granting us the liberties that we have. We should, uh, we should do our best to, you know, get them to read national review articles from March of 2020 more so that they can come around to the consensus that has been the prevailing wisdom outside of their circles for a very long time. Noah, you, this is, I'm going to object to this every time you do this. I'm just going to warn you that the going forward, we're, you are always you you have a you have a thing of saying everybody knows that da 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 and if everybody knew that da 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 it wouldn't matter that Fauci is is hinting that they're going to issue this guidance saying you don't have to wear masks in public anymore because everybody doesn't know there are people who are like it doesn't make sense to me that I need to do this when I read things that say that uh, it doesn't transmit outside. But trust me, everybody doesn't know. That's actually why we have things like public health experts and public health guidance, because people, it's not their business. They don't sit around reading articles like we do. They don't pay attention to research the way we do. And so they're going to go with what they're told, which is why it's really shameful the degree to which these consensus these con what is the plural of consensus i don't even know consensuses it doesn't seem right but anyway it's not consensi but that these consensuses establish themselves and then uh there's all this you know what we should let the let, keep it in place because you know what it's good for people to wash surfaces it's healthier they won't get other diseases it's good for people not to shake hands because that's a way, as Fauci says, of preventing people from getting respiratory disease. So if we tell people they shouldn't shake their hands during COVID, 
even if they could shake hands, you know, we're training them for the future. It's all this like, you know, nudge cast Sunstein manipulation stuff. This idea that the elites can sort of help guide people to better behavior through these kinds of instructions. I, I think it's worse okay. than that, though, because I think it's it's the it's the left wing progressive elite consensus version of stop the steal. It's trust the science, but the science is whatever we're going to say it's going to say, and it's not actually scientifically based. And when there's real science that that doesn't comport with, say, for example, the supposedly scientific claims of the teachers union, that we're going to go with the political science, literally the political version <laughs> of the science. So I think it's actually much more pernicious in terms of its effect on the population. Well, there's also another uh, aspect of this here, which is that um, there was no way Fauci was going to change any of the outdoor guidance until something came to pass that also not everyone knew was going to happen, but that we said was the case and that others knew, which is that there was not going to be a fourth wave um, of the of the pandemic as a result of states that, that dropped uh, the mask mandate. That's a very important point, and I think you can't stress this enough, that Texas and Florida, Texas in particular, has done, ended up doing the rest of the country an enormous service uh, by saying, all right, that's enough. And obviously, if the results had been parlous or had even been, I don't know what you would call it, like questionable then there would have been the, you see, we let go, we let our guard down too soon, and that's what happened. That's why we got a second wave and a third wave, and we let our guard down too soon. And you know what? It was never about letting our guard down too soon. These waves did not happen because people let their guards down too soon. We don't know why they happened. Just like nobody knows why India is going through this calamity at this moment. And yet I heard this morning, on it's like, India let its guard down too soon. It's like, well, I mean, it may have been that India it was inevitable that India was going to have a series of waves because, you know, there are so many urban centers that are so overpacked and overcrowded, and they have small, relatively small domiciles and large families, and that, of course, is what we know is the key transmission point for this. But I mean, that's a that that is a that is a key element of this entire conversation. And James James Servietsky, who who uh, wrote an uh, uh, economics column for The New Yorker for many years, put up a piece on Medium last night in which he said the whole point about the J&J, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine pause, is that you can quantify if you do a survey or a study of Johnson & Johnson's vaccines, how many people as a result of getting them or how many people got, got the vaccine and then had a blood clot. You can count that, right? So it's so it ended up being, I think, fifty-six overall in the United States when they decided to unpause the pause. What you can't count is how many lives would have been saved and how many blood clots wouldn't have happened had had there not been no pause. Because it's a not it's not a quantifiable number. But it's almost certainly larger than the number of people who got the clots. That that uh, overall epidemiologically, you have to figure that the, if the single best way to prevent someone from getting the vaccine, getting really sick and dying, or getting really really sick, is to be vaccinated, having a week or nine days in which people don't get vaccinated and the vaccination numbers drop, more people are going to die from that then would have died from the blood clots had there been no, and in fact, we don't even have any evidence that the blood clots are the result of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. What we do have evidence of is that the pause, which was done by officials at the CDC and the FDA, that the pause itself has increased vaccine hesitancy, that the number of vaccinations has dropped from a high of 4 million a day to below 3 million a day. And the only thing that you can attribute that to is vaccine hesitancy. And the only thing that you can contribute the increased vaccine hesitancy to was the Johnson & Johnson pause. So the incentive structure for the public health system in the United States is skewed, and it remains skewed toward making people do things 
while covering your own ass if you're in the public health profession. So can we talk about summer camp in this context? Please. The CDC's new guidance on summer camps is... Um, overnight camps. Overnight okay. summer camp, sleepaway camp. So if sleep you have kids who, are, who like to go to sleepaway camp, uh, many of us had the situation last summer where, you know, the camps, some camp, very few camps stayed open. One of my kids who was going to go to sleepaway camp, that was canceled. These camps, many of them struggling to survive. We talked a lot about this over the summer. Well, they, you know, with, with vaccination available to all the adults and with obviously low risk and low spread among kids, it seems like finally kids will get their summer back, right? They can go to sleepaway camp. Well, here comes the CDC with its guidance, which is completely, I, I think there was someone on social media who, who, summarized it best by saying it's completely untethered to reality. It's actually in some ways more strict than the guidelines for last summer before we had a vaccine. And they need to look at that guidance for what it is, not not law, not rules that must be followed, but guidance. In other words, parents, camp directors, anyone who has any uh, uh, skin in the game in terms of getting kids back outdoors and in healthy environments over the summer should say, we're going to use our judgment and our common sense, and we're going to make decisions that benefit our children that weigh appropriate appropriately weigh the risk, not follow in in legal fashion what the CDC has been saying. Because as we just said earlier, it, they're not they're often behind the curve in terms of what real world experience is showing us about how this virus works. Abe, Christine's saying that the this camp guidance came out saying that kids are going to have to wear masks outdoors at summer camp. Okay, Fauci goes on this week yesterday and says, we're about to issue guidelines that say that people don't have to wear masks outdoors. Don't, what lesson do you think people should take from the fact that the CDC is saying this thing about how two months from now, when summer camp starts, that's two months from now, kids are going to have to wear masks and yet the head of the infectious diseases, the leading epidemiologist in the United States, is saying we're about to drop the mask mandate. What, what are we supposed to take about government that this is that th- this is go- this happened on the same day? Leading the witness, leading the witness. And, uh, <laughs> uh, and we know kids are um, less likely to transmit the virus generally. And, and Fauci is talking about dropping the mandate for adults. Okay, by the way, let me just put this point, because you can't say it enough. There have been almost 600,000 deaths in the United States from COVID. Almost 600,000. Do you know how many of them are between the ages of 0 and 18? 288. 288 out of 600,000. Kids don't get COVID, and they don't transmit COVID, and they don't get sick from COVID. 288 deaths in the United States. Which is a tragic number. I mean, I just look, no, no. I mean, that that's, we're not downplaying the deaths of children here, but as in terms am, of the risk. <laughs> I am going to downplay the deaths of children because more children die of flu than die of COVID. Whereas we know for adults, that is exactly the opposite. Like we have right. this 12 or 14% surge in unexpected deaths in 2020 as a result of COVID, but that is not the case with children who are dying at a lower rate because no one got the flu and all of that. Anyway, Abe, I'm sorry. But so look, uh, the thing that gets me about this and what it says about um, uh, government um, is, is, is almost less important to me than how the public receives it. You see, because my fear, and this has been my ongoing fear throughout the pandemic, is that there is there continues to be a significant portion of the public who is perfectly willing to ignore these contradictions and who wants the official restrictions. Um, they are somehow comforted by this. They feel that um, there are larger, better informed sources looking out for their well-being, and that's the important thing. And this all contributes to something else I've said before here. Throughout the pandemic, we, we have lost our sense of acceptable risk. And people are very scared to reconsider um, what it means to wake up, realize there are germs in the world, realize there are risks in the world, and yet do a, an equation for oneself that uh, determines that you can go out into the world and, and do things and take that risk. That is disappearing. You know, like I was thinking with it with the, with the Johnson and Johnson pause, the way things are today, given this sense of having lost our sense of acceptable risk, 
let's pretend that aspirin was first discovered now, it would never get, make its way to the market. Right. I mean, it is, it is, it is so much more problematic in terms of side effects than, than say, uh, Johnson and the Johnson Johnson vaccine. It wouldn't make it. Right. Because, because we have absolutely forgotten what, what, is acceptable in terms of risk. Well, I think something else is sort of more. I, there, here's a here's another sort of interesting aspect of that, which is maybe an ordinary person has never been in a position where they had to think about it in terms of acceptable and unacceptable risk. That is, there's always like a kind of inherent thing, or uh, or but but uh, there was no sense of choice in it, right? So when you had people who 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 had extreme aversion to risk and like didn't want to go out when they were sick or wouldn't, you know, do whatever. When they had people, they, they were out of the mainstream. They were very much sort of like uh, kooks or neurotics or something like that. But, you know, they, they were who they were and they were, uh, they were sort of, okay. They were kind of eccentric. Um, But maybe that's because people were never put in a position where they had to think about it. Like this notion that, look, every time you step out the door, you're taking a risk. Suddenly, we're in a world in which we have to think about every time you have a social interaction, there's a risk. And maybe if that were the way people thought in general, no one would ever have ever taken a risk ever. You know, granted, 100 years ago, you know, you didn't really have a choice because everything was like it's there was no sense in which keeping yourself safe was that possible you know there weren't that many cures for diseases there weren't that you know like you couldn't prevent getting a lot of stuff and you know things could explode around you because if you read about like the early days of transportation like i read this biography of of cornelius vanderbilt who was the great transportation guru of the 19th century so he was a ferryman and he made started ferry from staten island to new york and then he made ferries that went up and down the hudson and these ferries once they got once they started using wood to power them or whatever and they weren't just being pulled on a rope or you know however it was they would blow up there were ferry accidents were totally common and if someone would be on a boat in the hudson the boat would explode a thousand people would die that would those like, were the infamous headlines right ferry sinks hundreds die no one to blame right yeah that was right. The, like, yeah but because, that was a more because, tragically realistic right. view of the world that we now lack <laughs> right well that's what i'm saying and we have a you know it's part of the sort of wonders of our of our time that we have been able to reduce risk so much that people actually think that they live with no risk. Right. I mean, they, they don't, you know, it's like that thing you say to people about planes, like you have, you're not going to crash, die in a plane crash. You're much more likely to step out into the street and be hit by a car, be hit by lightning. Well, if people are really start thinking that through, they'll be like, I can't go outside. I'll get hit by lightning. Well, I, no mean, one I have a, I have a, a one in a thousand chance. Right. No, no one would take a bath because your yeah. actual, your risk, even in your own home of an accident is, you know, there is some. Right. <laughs> right. But I want to get back to this government point about the CDC camping and Fauci. So there's a lot to learn about this, which is that Fauci is standing there and he's reading the New York Times. He's seeing the political consensus and the social consensus shift. And uh, and uh, this is one of the reasons that he has been corru- so corrupted, I think, by this last year. That's going to change his mind just because he wants to stay ahead of the conventional wisdom curve or be part of the conventional wisdom curve that is that is pretty shocking but what's what's even more what's even more telling is whole point is there's a camp committee at the cdc and it has 12 doctors on it or whatever and who knows what they're deciding and it's not connected to the larger point which is they're issuing guidance and in three days everyone in america is going to be told you can go be outside without a mask on and they're going to have issued this guidance saying every kid in camp has to wear a mask. So don't believe that government knows what it's doing. Government doesn't know what it's doing in this most important government intervention into our lives, in our lifetimes, right? In relation to how we were supposed to conduct ourselves during this pandemic. This is just one example of what happens if you put too much trust 
in government and you believe that everybody who's granted i'm going to say everybody who is doing this is doing it because they think they're doing the right thing i'm not questioning their motives i'm just saying you're a bunch of bureaucrats or they're whoever they are they're on a committee and uh and you know as is always the case with a committee of 10 people one particularly belligerent or aggressive neurotic can start dominating the proceedings and pushing the proceedings into a much more extreme place than they might be otherwise or the other way around. And it's, um, and you know, we, it's easy for us to understand this because we're skeptical of big scale government and, and, and collective action and all of that. It's so much harder for liberals who have a more benevolent sense of this to get to the point where they're going, Oh, I don't, I don't need to listen to these bozos like who are they anyway some gs12 you know in atlanta like what do i what am i listening to him for well and they have to respond to the parents who also listen to this and and the fear-mongering in the media and they come to the camp director for example and say but the cdc isn't recommending this you have to do what the cdc says. you have to follow the science and the camp directors often cave to that demand because look the parents are their customers right yeah exactly uh now let's Talk about one of the great skeptics of the of uh, and I mean skeptic not in not believing that there was COVID or anything like that because he did and all of that but one of the skeptics about government and the way the government was handling this our friend David Bonson at the Bonson Group uh, has watched and crunched the data from the beginning of the of the pandemic about surges and guidances and lockdowns and all of that. And I think if you go back and look at his, the things he said, the recommendations he made in his two great internet products, the dividendcafe.com and the dctoday.com, you'll discover that he was so right in so many ways that uh, I, as somebody who doesn't really understand finance, um, find that a person... uh, if he does, if he knows, if he is this sane and rational about something uh, as important as the pandemic, and follows the follows the math and crunches the numbers and all of that with such a good common sense that you got to figure that with that two point eight billion dollars under management if, with his bi coastal management firm, the Bonson Group, he knows what he's talking about, and I certainly feel that way reading the dctoday.com and dividendcafe.com and you should too. So go check them out from the Bonson group, your antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Abe, New York times breaks news of a leak uh, in Iran of an interview with Iranian foreign minister uh, Zarif uh, in which we learn that everything that the neocons have been saying about Iran, the uh, the uh, uh, the Revolutionary Guard Corps, its elites, uh, army, um, and its foreign policy has been true forever. Which is that Zarif, the foreign minister, runs nothing. The uh, the IRGC runs everything, and that he doesn't know what's going on, and he is forced to sort of. Uh, back and fill whatever they want and whatever they want to do, that they wanted to scuttle the Iran deal, that they wanted to, uh, all this stuff. Uh, It's a pretty staggering thing. No one knows where the leak came from. No one knows whether Zarif will survive the week, uh, even though he is, of course, right now negotiating with Robert Malley over a return into the Iran deal. Um, What do you make of it? Why don't people just listen to us on everything? I mean, <laughs> Thank look at you. Our, look look Thank at our you. record this morning. Yeah. That's it? Okay, yeah. good. That's a good... Okay, so let's... But let's... Let, two points. One of which is this this whole point, which is that the Iranian Revolution Guard Corps, uh, he says two... He said one... He says a couple of really striking things. That the... That uh, our assassination of Soleimani uh, in Iraq... Uh, was worse for Iran's military position and geostrategic position than bombing, was it cities? What, what I think he said bombing a whole city would be or something like that. Like that, 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 that the targeted killing of this one guy was a huge strategic win for the United States. Hey, remember who said that it was a huge... No one in the Democratic Party, as I recall... 
there was all this, well, look, I'm glad he's dead, but I mean, this is really just not the way to, we don't do things this way here. Uh, and of course, we hit Soleimani because he had hit our, uh, he had hit us, uh, the Iranians had hit us in, uh, both in Iraq and in Syria. Anyway, Noah. Well, I mean, I don't know if I have a whole lot of thoughts on this, in part because everybody's behaving as you expected them to behave, um, only insofar as it's reasonable to review the record. Um, there was quite a stir caused when the last president of the United States, Donald Trump, um, sort of offhandedly gave away some highly classified Israeli national security secrets to which we were privy to as a close ally to Russian ambassador, the late, uh, I forget his first name, Kislyak. Um, and you know, that was greeted with a fair amount of consternation, duly so, because it, the president can say whatever he wants to say whenever he wants to say it, but that doesn't render it prudent. Um, and in this case, we're giving away Israeli national secrets, Israeli defense policy, um, in order to advance uh, a domestic political object- objective. I know the Iran deal isn't supposedly a domestic political objective, but for Barack Obama, it very much was a domestic political objective. And I think for this administration, it still is. And it, it is, comes at the expense, uh, not just of our relationship with uh, Jerusalem, but also its its own its own objectives in its region and its national affairs um, at the with the most urgency, as it defines as the most urgent possible um, objectives. So, you know, the, the sort of conspicuous silence on this part, I mean, the, the revolution itself was buried in, in paragraph 26 of a New York Times story. It deserves its own treatment, but just sort of tells you where everybody's priorities are. Okay, so John Kerry tells Zarif that Israel has hit Iranian targets in Syria 200 times. And Zarif reacts with horror and astonishment. Um, So first of all, that means he doesn't know anything. And he's the person who is negotiating for Iran in international fora. Therefore, he doesn't know what Iran's nuclear position is. He doesn't know what he's agreeing to or what he's giving up or whatever. It's all on another track, and he doesn't know nothing. Secondly, um, if the Democrats are serious, and Mark Warner, who is the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, is a serious person, he will call John Kerry in to a classified session to ask him if this happened, when it happened, was he the Secretary of State when it happened? Was he a private citizen after he was gone? Did he have private communication with Zarif between 2017 and 2021 in which he revealed this thing that he knew because he had been Secretary of State? This is an astounding intelligence breach. I mean, I assume it's true because why would Sarif lie in this interview that he gave to an Iranian about this? Um, And John Kerry is, of course, the climate change envoy of the president of the United States going around talking to world leaders. What is coming out of his mouth that he knows? Uh, this is not an academic question. This is a like a real-world, real-time question about somebody who is a diplomat functioning at high diplomatic levels. As Noah says, the difference between him and Trump is that Trump, as president of the United States, cannot be guilty of a leak because the classification of documents, it's hard to say because it's a weird thing to say in a democracy, but it emanates from him personally the idea that a that anything is classified by as a as a as a as a secret in the federal government um rises from the president's position as commander in chief of the armed forces and head of the intelligence community and all of that he is stands above it he is the source of it but everybody below him is not no, everyone else is subject to the same rules, which is if you're some schlep on a desk and you hand the Iranians information about the Israelis and what they're doing in Syria, you go to jail for 20 years. If you're John Kerry, you don't. Now, maybe Kerry was authorized by Barack Obama 
to say this. In which case, I think Mark Warner and the Senate Intelligence Committee should know that and therefore let him be. That Kerry was given his head to, 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 to reveal certain things. But if he was a private citizen and he said it, he should go to jail. I, I, I mean, I, I don't know. How should he not go to jail? People have gone to jail for a lot less in terms of, I mean, this is a huge secret involving an ally. As I said, the president of the United States can't be thrown in jail if it's Trump. But John Kerry was Secretary of State, not president, and he might have been a private citizen, and we don't know. And by the way, shouldn't be talking to Zarif even as a private citizen, but fine, whatever. That's my rant. But I do also want to say, we told you that the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps runs everything in Iran. It's the mullahs and the RGC, and it is not the foreign ministry and the hawks versus the doves. It's all the hawks. They're all the hawks. They're doing everything. There are no doves. If Zarif is a dove, first of all, Zarif is some dove. But if he's a dove, he just told somebody that he has no power in Iran in a leaked document, a leaked tape or whatever the hell it was. That's some juicy leak. I, how many people are going to die for that leak? That's that's my other question. I, it's, I, I don't have an answer to that question. But you know what I do have an answer to? Is if somebody leaks anything about you, there's a way, that what they'll do is they'll use your data, right? They'll, they'll, they'll figure stuff out from you based on your data and how you use your data. So, you know, sometimes you think you can hide your data by going into incognito mode on your browser. You know, Chrome has an incognito browser, but Chrome is a Google product. Google makes its fortune by tracking your movements online. There's even a $5 billion class action suit against Google in California where it's accused of secretly collecting user data. Google's defense, incognito does not mean invisible. So think about that. That incognito browser doesn't make you invisible. So how do you make yourself invisible as possible online? Particularly if you're Zarif, you use ExpressVPN. Because it turns out even in incognito mode, your online activity still gets tracked. Data brokers still get to buy and sell your data. They get your IP address. They harvest it. But with ExpressVPN, your connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and your IP address is masked because every time you connect to ExpressVPN, you get a random IP address shared by many other ExpressVPN users that makes it harder for third parties to identify you or track your data. Best of all, ExpressVPN is super easy to use no matter what device you're on, phone, laptop, or smart TV. All you have to do is tap one button for instant protection. So if you really want to go incognito and protect your privacy, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash commentary. Expressvpn.com slash commentary. Biden's going to give a speech on Wednesday night. Who's excited? Yay. (laughs) It's kind of a sort of a state of the unionist. She's going to announce the infrastructure plan. The family. Yeah. Family. The family family part of the infrastructure. I don't know. Yeah. He's going to announce how he's going to spend our money. That's what he's going to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So apparently, it's like uh, three hundred billion for child uh, for childcare. Um. So you know, that's. I I wish I'd started a nursery school last year because it could be very, <laughs> could be very exciting. Um. So. Uh, can I can I just bring up Please. one thing that was yes. again this is a very it seems kind of an onlineish thing but it speaks to why a lot of Americans are mistrustful of our media institutions and that was the Washington Post Glenn Kessler's hit on Senator Tim Scott oh, which I, yeah. on Friday where he basically was like he shouldn't be saying things like I came from cotton to Congress and you know he's basically not poor and black enough to be caught, to be telling his own story of his own family's you know incredible rise from nothing to something and like it it was so appalling and just so astonishing to see such a blatant attack on someone who in many ways embodies exactly what we should 
want in this country in terms of how we talk about race, how we discuss police reform, for example. Scott's been really trying to find bipartisan support for his police reform bill for some time. It just it disgusted me. And and I don't say that lightly. Um, And I and it absolutely reinforces the idea that someone who calls himself a fact checker for a major newspaper in this country has no business telling Senator Tim Scott that he cannot talk about his family origins and his family story. It's appalling, in my opinion. So there's my rant. (laughs) There is a weird habit uh, among the press uh, of going after, and I, I'm going to now give an example from like almost 50 years ago, or it's 47 years ago, or something like that. Uh, habit of a heterodox people who people think should think one way but don't think that way, of really being eager to come up with some way to destroy their reputations and say they are not who they say they are. So Tim Scott, this is great grandfather. His grandfather apparently was a property owner. Uh, but his grandfather ended up as a cotton-picking sharecropper, uh, as though that were not a story that was duplicated and reduplicated, that either his great-grandfather lost his money or that uh, his property was somehow expropriated, he made a bad deal. We don't know what the terms are, the circumstances, but it's certainly the case that that could have happened and almost certainly did happen the way that Tim Scott says. Well, the example I want to give is uh, a, a, a left-wing journalist in the 1970s named Timothy Krauss um, did a an expose of Pat Moynihan, uh, who was then a, a very close uh, family friend, uh, and of course a contributor to commentary uh, was you know running was running for Senate, and Pat told the story about how his was raised in Hell's Kitchen in New York, which is a very bad neighborhood. <coughs> his father had been a drunk. And his mother had to move apartments all the time, and it was very unsafe, and it was, you know, they lived in terrible conditions and all of that. And Krauss somehow determined that this was not true because Pat's dad had owned a bar, and then he did this, and he did that, and and Pat had lived at this address for two years, and so he wasn't poor if he had lived at this address, except... He was poor, and he did have a drunken father who was a wastrel, and he did live in terrible conditions. And in and Krauss had somehow done all this investigation to dig up the fact that at certain moments in his life between the ages of zero and eighteen, his father had come into some money and had done okay, and then basically had lost it all. And so that even that instability was somehow it was certainly probably part of the the life experience that he had lived. He wasn't lying. He didn't tell any fibs out of school. But it was important because Pat was running in the Democratic primary against more liberal candidates like Bell Abzug and Ramsey Clark and others, and because he was a neoconservative and was a heterodox guy who had defended Israel and America at the UN and all of that, that he needed to be taken down. And it's not that we don't understand the impulse to expose the hypocrisy of people in politics, but there is a certain type of that guy is not saying what he should be saying, given who he is. Like if Pat Moynihan is a liberal Democrat, you know, Irishman from New York, he should be espousing X, Y, and Z view. And since he's not, he's a liar and he deserves and he deserves to be destroyed and his and he deserves to be defamed. And that's part of the Tim Scott story. Just try to find a way to bring down somebody who acts in ways that are not cliched or, you know, um, and so I'm talking about something 46, 45, 46 years ago. I'm talking about something that happened the other day. And what about Glenn Kessler, whose grandfather was a Nazi? Are we supposed to tell? So congratulations, Glenn Kessler. Your grandfather is a Nazi Let's get you fired because your grandfather was a Nazi. Is that what they, is that is this is this what we want? Grandfather was like a major executive at Royal Dutch Shell. Great Nazi. I don't care what Glenn Kessler's grandfather was, and neither should you. And he shouldn't be going around complaining about other people's grandfathers when he's got you know he's got his own 
you know, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones is one of the most important cliches that we know. Uh, okay, so anything else? Nothing Sarah else? Halemi. Halemi. Uh, well, I, 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 we can't really... I mean, there was an amazing demonstration yesterday for Sarah Halimi, the the 27-year-old school teacher who was thrown, who was um, uh, beaten, tortured, and thrown off a balcony by a um, Muslim radical who uh, was um, uh, not convicted of the crime on the grounds that he had been high on marijuana, a famous, a famous psychotic-inducing drug that causes people to get incredibly violent, marijuana. She was 65, not, by the way, 65. I'm sorry, did I say 27? Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. I, I I don't know where. I'm sorry. I apologize. Anyway, um, anyway, there was an astonishing demonstration. French Jews demonstrated yesterday in Paris, and it was pretty amazing. We should talk in greater detail about the Sarah Halimi case because it 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 echoes and parallels stuff that has been going on, particularly in relation to Israel, but in Western Europe since the 1970s and the the ways in which. Um, for all kinds of internal domestic policy reasons, governments in Italy, governments in Germany, governments in France have always soft-pedaled anti-Semitic crime out of fear of domestic discord and internet and the and the threat of international terrorist violence. But that's a topic that we can maybe take up tomorrow. So until tomorrow, for Abe Christina, no, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>